to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, hello. Welcome again to our online gathering. My name is Andre. I'm the lead pastor here at the city. A very good morning to you. Welcome to church as we know it for the last four weeks. Well, if this is your first time tuning in or uh, I've never met you in person before, I'd like to extend a warm welcome to you. And I so look forward to meeting you in person someday. Now, wasn't that video amazing? Thanks so much for participating in that. It feels so nice to hear all your voices again. And though we are apart, you know, that's a great way for us to stay connected. And I love that we are able to do that through technology and of course, you know, the hard work of our team putting it all together. And I hope, really hope you enjoyed that. And I can't wait for the day we get to actually do that song live here in this auditorium together. Looking forward to seeing you again. Well, today is Easter Sunday. He is risen. Thank you for participating. We'll try it again. He is risen. Beautiful. Well, today, you know, along with some 2.9 billion professed followers of Jesus Christ, we are celebrating Easter Sunday. This very day, some 2,000 years ago, our Messiah defeated death, hell, and the grave. Though he was killed on that cross and was buried in the grave, he did not stay in the grave. On the third day, he rose again victorious in power. And today, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is risen indeed. And that is Easter Sunday. That's what we're celebrating today in our homes, not together. It looks different, but today is a day still worth celebrating because our God is worthy to be praised. Amen. Well, today, uh, as we always do, you know, I'm encouraging you around God's Word this morning and I pray that whatever I have to share would speak to your life, regardless of where you're at in life and in faith. I pray that this Word will speak to you. But at the end of our time together, we will be partaking in communion together. And so I would like for you to um, just make sure that the elements are prepared, you know, whether you're using crackers or bread small little biscuits or using grape juice or wine not too much wine grape juice or wine i want you to i would uh, like you to make sure that these elements are prepared as we're going to get into it right at the end of the message awesome right let us pray before we begin diving into god's word this morning bow our heads father we thank you for this opportunity and time we get to read your word we get to uh, experience you through the reading of scripture and god we thank you for this blessed day the day to which you defeated death and all its friends jesus christ your son defeated death and all its friends and god we thank you that you are alive that today even as we pray and read scriptures we're not communing with a god who once lived but we're communicating and we're experiencing a god who is present who is alive who is very real who speaks into our present circumstance. And God, we thank you for this great day. We celebrate your name. We celebrate your victory on the cross. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, what a year 
2020 has been already. What a year 2020 has been already. I was talking to a friend recently and he said, man, there's enough drama and events just in the first three months of 2020 that will make for like an eventful year. And I personally believe like a really eventful decade. So much has happened in the first quarter of this year, 2020. Well, um, we know of the Australian bushfire that burned some 18.6 million hectares of land, the devastating floods in Indonesia killing 66 people on New Year's Day, the shooting down of a Ukrainian jetliner killing all 176 people on board, the death of Kobe and Gigi Bryan, Mamba Forever, and of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. What a year, what a tragic year there's been already. And it will be safe to say that this year is starting off on an incredibly bad note. It's starting off an incredibly bad note. And who is to say, who is to know what the future holds? It's so unpredictable and it's scary in many ways. Many are asking very real and honest questions in this time. Even as we celebrate this great day, many of you are plagued with these very real and honest questions. Is my job secured? Will I have the funds to tide me through this time? Will I get sick? Will my elderly parents be okay? Now, if you look up articles on the coronavirus, on this pandemic that we're experiencing as a global population, uh, one word comes up in almost every headline. And the word is the word despair. Despair. And some headlines read, cries of despair from ground zero of the coronavirus outbreak. Despair in China's Wuhan as coronavirus triggers lockdown. German finance minister's death linked to despair over the virus. Nurses despair as panic buyers clear shelves. Merriam-Webster dis dis defines despair as such. It is the complete loss or absence of hope. The complete loss or absence of hope. And it's such a sad, painful, tragic word but yet, in so many ways, it so very well captures the sense, the climate, the air that we're breathing all around us. It feels like despair. It feels completely absent of any hope. And in this time, day, and age, and climate, we ask ourselves this very honest question. Is hope even possible today? Is it even viable? Is it something even worth entertaining. Why should I or can I even hope and believe for things to turn out for the better in the future? And my answer is yes. I do believe there is a reasonable cause, a compelling cause to hope even today, even in this climate, in spite of all we face today and all we might face in the future, there is a reason to hope. Why do I believe so? The short answer is resurrection. Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is why I believe that there is cause to hope, not just that there is cause to rejoice in this day. The title of my message today is this, The Road to Easter. The Road to Easter. Road to Easter. I'd like to begin by showing you a painting. Now this painting uh, was painted in the 19th century and it's housed in a small Roman Catholic Church in Spain. Now the artist was a man named Elias Martinez and he painted this beautiful picture called Behold the Man. And this painting is of Jesus wearing the crown of thorns right before his crucifixion. And 
an amazingly beautiful painting, beautiful art piece. Now this picture uh, that was housed in that small church in Spain became the center of that community. It reminded that community that Christ was in the midst of them in their suffering. It reminded them that they were seen and known by God. But tragically, like many art due to the climate, that painting, that fresco, began to slowly fade and it began to look like this. You see paints coming off and that art piece uh, had deteriorated and faded over time. And then out of nowhere recently, uh, uh, it appeared that someone had vandalized the fresco. Next slide, let's show up the slide. It looks hilarious, doesn't it? Now police began their investigation and they seized an elderly 80-year-old lady. And now when she was asked why she defaced the painting, she said this, I love Jesus very much, and I was concerned that this picture of Jesus was slowly fading away. And so in my spare time, I stepped up and restored the fresco. Now, isn't this so true even for the resurrection? That as time passed by, our image and understanding and I'll go on further to say the ramifications of the resurrection has been gradually muddied, fading away, watered down, and in many ways suited to our own interpretations. But for many around the world, it's true to say that Jesus was reduced to this kind of historical figure. He was a kind man, a good teacher with wise sayings, a worker of miracles, and a lover of humanity. But that's it. And over time, as humanity grow and progress through the ages, we have begun to lose our emphasis on the resurrection story and all of its ramifications. But it will do us serious good to consider this day that we are celebrating with the global population. Some 2.9 billion people are celebrating Easter today. Resurrection has earth-shaking ramifications. And it's so sad that we only talk about it in most places once a year. Resurrection is not just an event we commemorate. It has altered and changed the destiny of all of humanity. And it's worth taking a serious consideration. David Foster Wallace, when he was addressing the graduating class uh, at a college with his speech, uh, he, he begins with a parable. He said this, There are these two young fish swimming along, and they began, and they met an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? Wallace elaborated on his water parable and says this, the point of fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see, least talked about and appreciated. And such is the case the death and resurrection of our Lord. That though it is without a shadow of a doubt what our entire faith hangs upon, it is the most earth-shaking of realities, yet we rarely devote time to seriously considering how it is to change our lives. Bonhoeffer has this to say, we have grown so accustomed to the idea of divine love that we no longer sense the awe that God's coming should awaken in us. In the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, says this, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. 
the resurrection. It is the very basis of our faith, the reason of our existence as a faith community. And I would argue to say that the resurrection is relevant not just to believers then and there, but is relevant to all of humanity in the here and now, especially in this time. Christ is risen indeed. Now let's begin with our reading a passage of scripture together from Matthew chapter 8, sorry, chapter 28, uh, verse 1 to 6. Now this is the resurrection account from Matthew chapter 28. I hope you have your Bibles out and let's read this passage together. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. And he goes on to say this, He is not here, for he is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now picture this. You're a first century Jew, an ardent, passionate, monotheist, anti-idolatry kind of guy. You live in Roman Greek culture, full of different gods and deities, and are against all of that. And then Jesus comes into the scene. And scripture notes that within hours of his resurrection, the people began to worship him. Now, this was a major turning point. They spoke primarily of Jesus in the gospel as a great teacher. If you lived in that day, you would know him as a rabbi, a teacher of the word. But there, you know, the story shifts and they begin to recognize Jesus as Lord, as Lord. Now, the word for Lord used in this passage is the Greek word kyrios, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew proper name of God, Yahweh. And so when you said that Jesus is Lord, you're literally saying that Jesus is the embodiment of Yahweh, that Jesus is the creator stepping into creation, that Jesus, that in him, divinity and humanity meet. Jesus is Lord. He is Yahweh. And so how do we get to that point from recognizing Jesus as a teacher to recognizing him as God who came in the flesh and dwelt among us. Simple. It is the resurrection. Easter Sunday. And as believers, we believe that Jesus was nailed and died on the cross on Friday, was buried in the tomb, and on Sunday, the stone covering the entrance of the tomb was rolled away. Jesus rose from the grave. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. He came back from the dead. At the center of all that we believe as followers of Jesus is the claim that the tomb is now empty, that Jesus is alive, not dead. He is here, not far away. He is now not just a man in the past. He is present in our sufferings and is the hope of our future. That is the heart of the gospel. That is good news. He is risen. But for today, you know, even as I take this message in a different trajectory, I'd like us to consider this resurrection story that we just heard in a different light. And I'd like us to consider it uh, by taking a few steps back. We're going to read the events of uh, a Sunday, a week before resurrection, a week before Easter Sunday. And this is a day we commonly refer to as 
Palm Sunday. And we get that language, Palm Sunday, this idea of a Palm Sunday from this text in Matthew chapter 21. This is a week before the events of Easter. Let's read this passage together from Matthew chapter 21, verse 6. It said this, So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the roads. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, this is what we commonly refer to and celebrate as Palm Sunday. And this is perhaps what the disciples at a point of time felt was the high point of Jesus' ministry. This obscure Jewish teacher from Nazareth that no one really knew about was now celebrated by a massive crowd. He had amassed a great following. He was recognized as a prophet, as a worker of miracles. And it seemed like the hope of their people, the entire Jewish community was about to be realized that this man, this great teacher, worker of miracles was amassing such a great following and it was beginning to grow to be a threat to the Roman oppressors, to the Roman Empire. And the Jewish people suddenly were filled with this great sense of hope in them. Hey, this guy could be it. This guy could be the answer, the key to our liberation. And we're all too familiar with the story here because what follows this triumphant entry into Jerusalem was a week of absolute disillusionment and despair. The disciples encountered loss, betrayal, and are confronted with many painful realities. And in many ways, this is so related to both to us right now, isn't it? We find ourselves toggling between hope and despair, between joy and disillusionment. Now, the first thing, I have three realities that the disciples were confronted with in this time. The first thing that the disciples were confronted with on the road to East, on the road to resurrection was this. They were confronted with the reality of a God who is beyond their control. Of a God who is beyond their control. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, verse uh, 48. Matthew chapter 26, verse 48. Now it says this in God's word. Now his betrayer, meaning Judas, had given him a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, sees him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. So for, for the disciples, uh, even though they had been living in proximity to Jesus for some three years, we have to understand that much of their cultural worldview was still intact. By that I mean, you know, the Jews in that day firmly believed that there was a coming king, a coming Messiah figure who would come in and overthrow 
the oppressors, overthrow the Roman Empire, and it will look very much like a violent conquest that this guy was going to come in like a great conqueror. And we see this belief leaking out in Peter as he took the sword to, struck, to, to strike the, the servants here, but also in James and John who sought to call down fire on a village. And we find the roots of these violent beliefs uh, from the story of Judah, Judah Maccabus. Now, Judah Maccabus, you read about him in history books, but Judah Maccabus was the leader in that day of, of a somewhat successful guerrilla war against the Rome, against their oppressors. And it's interesting that the name Maccabus uh, can be translated as hammer. And then many Jews uh, thought that perhaps Judah Maccabus would be the Messiah that they've been waiting and longing for. But it was not to be. Maccabus ended up forming a treaty with the Romans, and the Romans ended up being just as oppressive as the Greeks. 160 years later, after Judah Maccabus, a baby was born in Bethlehem and laid in a major. And now Judah Maccabus, this hammer, was the prototype of an avenging Messiah that Israel was expecting to show up at any time. But Jesus of Nazareth did not fit the Judah Maccabus stereotype or prototype. He did not come in as an avenging Messiah. He did not come in to issue paybacks or take vengeance on people, but rather he portrayed himself, he postured himself as a loving, kind saviour. And this is partly why Israel's elite rejected Jesus as Messiah. He did not fit their predetermined expectation of what a Messiah figure should be. And it was not only the elites that were disappointed, the disciples were angry and upset as well. But it would do us good to even realize and know that Jesus didn't come to conquer the world with a sword. He came to save it with the cross. And this confounded the people of that day, even Jesus' own disciples, that God seemed to take or seemed to do something that was contrary to what they thought was right and appropriate. And this is what we have to come to as well. God's ways is higher, are higher than our ways. We don't serve a God confined to our imaginations, desires, and perception of what is good. His ways, His purposes far exceeds our imagination. It's uncomfortable and can be scary at times. I think of this great exchange between Susan and Mr. Beaver in the Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion, said Mr. Beaver. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. He isn't safe but He is good. I think that captures what our God is. He isn't safe, but He is good, and we can trust in Him. The next reality that we're confronted with uh, in that day as the disciples traveled and traversed on the road towards Easter was that they were confronted with the inevitability of death. The inevitability of death. Now, many of you would, would know that I've been on a fitness journey I've been trying to get fit and I recently signed up for a uh, gym exercise kind of franchise and uh, it's high intensity interval training and it's called F45. And what you do in these classes is that you do uh, certain kind of movements and you 
do a certain workout. And what they have in the studio are like these massive screens that show you what the movement ought to look like so don't enjoy yourself. And also a timer, a countdown timer. And now as you're doing the exercise, chances are your eyes are fixed on that countdown timer because once the timer goes zero, you can put your weights down, you can stop whatever crazy acrobatic move that you're pulling and then you can rest. Countdown timer, love it. Well, this might take a really morbid, slightly different trajectory, but I've, I'm sure all of you are well, well aware that in many ways we all live with somewhat of a countdown timer, right? There's a countdown timer on our lives. We will die someday. The statistics for that is pretty rock solid. 100%, 100% hit rate, we will die. And the tricky part about that is that we are unable to see the countdown timer before us. You know, we never know when we are going to go. We never know when we're going to die. It could be 30 years uh, from dying of old age. It could be three weeks from now from contracting COVID-19. It could be three hours later due to an accident. You never know when you're going to die. And so the question is no longer or ought not longer to be if you would die or when you would die since it's unpredictable. The question should really be how would you die? What kind of posture and state of soul are you going to die with? Will you die with regret, with bitterness in your heart, or fear of what is to come? Or would you embrace death with gladness and great joy? One of the most prolific writers of the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. And he writes this on Christ's death and resurrection. Verse, uh, verse 20 of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, it says this, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so what Paul is saying to believers is simply this, Whatever happened to Jesus would someday happen to all of Jesus' followers. We all will die just as Jesus himself died. But we all, like him, will be raised to life again. Death and then resurrection. There is life on the other side. And Paul, in his second letter to the Church of Corinth, says this, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So for Paul, death is almost welcomed. And we can see why he speaks of a coming judgment where we will all receive what is due to us in accordance to life lived on earth. And for Paul, this was a very welcome reality because he sought to do what was pleasing before God. Therefore, he looked at death with such gladness, joy, and anticipation. And you know, I think it, it does us good to ask a really simple question now, even as you consider this idea of mortality as death looms at our doorstep as we see deaths all around us in the world. What is the dominant emotion that rises in your heart even as you think about your own death? Is it regret, fear, or is it joy, gladness, and anticipation? And I think, you know, there can be a mixed bag here. Of course, you know, we'll feel sad and regretful on some level. 
but you know, I think the question here is that what is the dominant emotion? Are you for the most part fearful of death? Or do you look at it with such great anticipation that you'll get to see the Saviour face to face on the other side? It's an important, crucial question to ask, even in this time. Even as we see the threat of death all around us, it does us good to consider even our own deaths. Now, history notes of a plague in AD 251 that killed 5,000 people a day in the city of Rome alone. The plague of 251 roused the Christians of Carthage to action under the leadership of the bishop Cyprian. Pagan authorities blamed the Christians for triggering the displeasure of the gods, and the emperor pronounced a death penalty on those who were not bowed before the imperial gods. But Cyprian implored his flock to minister to the physical needs of their oppressors, regardless of the danger posed to themselves by both persecution and contagion. And the Bishop of Carthage said this about the Christians and the ordeal. He said this, We are learning not to fear death. Wow, what a line. In the face of the contagion, but not just that, in persecution, the threat of persecution and was that. He said this about the believers in that day. We are learning not to fear death. And perhaps what's surfacing in many of your hearts now is this fear of death. And perhaps this is a time where we learn not to fear death. How then do you not fear death? To welcome it with open arms and gladness in your heart is when you're assured of life on the other side and the resurrection speaks into that. The last reality that the disciples were confronted with on the road to Easter is that they were confronted with a dichotomy of hope. Through scriptures, we know that the disciples after Palm Sunday, that triumphal entry in the week leading up to that first Easter, experienced great disillusionment with Judas's betrayal, the humiliation of Jesus on the cross, and his eventual death. They had experienced what they would have regarded as the high point of Jesus' ministry on Palm Sunday. The crowds were enamored with Jesus, and it seemed like Jesus was on the right track to become king of all. But yet, in the thick of that, in the thick of the celebration and the, the uh, almost exaltation of Jesus in that day, the disciples know, knew full well that this wasn't it. Though this was great, this wasn't it. And we know that the disciples would have been familiar with the messianic promises as well as the words of Jesus. Jesus himself predicted his own death, but he also spoke of his coming again. And so for the disciples, it was almost as though they were living in a tension of a kind of hope. Uh, in the present, they had this uh, experience in the presence on, on, on Palm Sunday, seeing Jesus being exalted the way he did, but they knew it wasn't it. And they also had a kind of hope for the future, knowing what Jesus said and what he was going to do. And so they lived in that tension. And the week from between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday was this great place of tension, of angst within, knowing this isn't it, this is not all there is to the story. They were grateful for Palm Sunday, celebrated it, yet they were eagerly anticipating Easter Sunday, eagerly pining for the resurrection. And in between those two Sundays, those two hopes, if you will, was disillusionment, despair, and hardships. And isn't, there, isn't that where many of us are at today? We live in between two Sundays. Now, as you can tell, this is a very different Easter for our church family. 
Typically, on Easter Sunday, we would have baptisms in this hall. Last year, we baptized some 10 people into a new life in Christ. We would do different things. You know, we have videos, a great sermon. We'll always have an Easter buffet. Uh, we always believe in giving free food and, and also celebrating life in God's kingdom together. But, you know, this year we are apart. Uh, I'm thankful that we still get to be connected. We get to do the video thing. We get to be connected this way. But, you know, we are apart and connected, yet, you know, we are not together. It's a kind of a weird spot that we're in this year. And I'm thankful that we still get to be connected. This video thing is awesome. And I'm grateful for technology. I'm thankful for it and our team uh, for serving us so well. But you and I both know that this isn't it. This isn't it. This is great, but this isn't it. One day, hopefully soon, we will be together in this hall again. And it's this tension that we have to live in, right? We are grateful for what we do have in the present. We have hope here. But at the same time, our hearts pine and anticipate for hope in the future, for when we come back together again. This internal ache and angst that you feel, this tension of wanting to be grateful for that which you have in the present, yet knowing that this is simply not it, and pining and anticipating for more, this was where the disciples were at. And I believe that this is where we ought to exist in life. To be grateful, hopeful, but yet not settle, be content, but pine and long for something greater. N.T. Wright, this intellectual giant, has this to say about Christ's resurrection. The resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you are now invited to belong to it. See, the resurrection in many ways, the conclusion of Jesus' life on the earth was an ending of sorts, but it was not really an ending. It really was a beginning for all of us, for all of humanity. Let's read the rest of the text that I quoted earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll start off in verse 24. It says this, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when he says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. And now when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. What we've been talking about is but the first resurrection and there's coming another resurrection of the living and the dead where we will be caught up in the sky with Christ. In the resurrection, we know that Christ is truly Lord. In the resurrection, we know that God's word is true. It's yes and amen. In the resurrection, we have hope that no matter how dark, bleak or dire a circumstance, Christ will prevail. But that isn't all there is to the story. In the resurrection, we have a hope for a new and coming kingdom. In the resurrection, we know that 
all the imperfections of the world will pass away. In the resurrection, we know there is coming a day where there will be no more missile tests in North Korea, no more threats of war, no more disasters, no more tragedy, no more hunger, no sickness, no disease. Every tear will be wiped away and all of creation will come back under the rule and reign of God as it was in the beginning. That is God's coming kingdom and the resurrection inaugurates the coming of God's kingdom on the earth. And until that day, we live in somewhat of a dichotomy of hope. A hope we have to live well in the present, yet a hope that stirs up a kind of dissatisfaction in our hearts that causes us to pine and long for more, to long for hope to be realized. We live in between a promised hope and a realized hope. Now, we may be celebrating Easter this way, this year, right, in 2020, but I, I believe in the year 2020, and hopefully so, churches all around the planet will be celebrating Easter twice. The first on the 12th of April, like that, but the second will be when we are able to come back together again. And I can't wait for that service. I think it's going to be a crazy service. But my hope is this, that in this time where we are apart, and anticipating coming back together, that our hearts will be tutored in anticipation, that you'll be tutored in a sense of spiritual hunger in not settling for what we do have, but constantly pining for more. This world is not our own. This world will never be perfect, but there's coming a whole new world that we are to eagerly yearn for. That is the promise of the gospel. You know, in many ways today, we are celebrating Easter just like the disciples did that first Easter Sunday. The first Easter Sunday, the disciples were fearful for their lives. The scripture tells us they were huddled up in a home, bunkered up in a home, and they were uncertain of what the future would hold for them. And the ending of the gospel story, if you think about it, is pretty anticlimactic, right? Jesus defeats death itself and rises from the dead. And you would think that after Jesus is resurrected and is back on the earth, that he would go perhaps to Caesar in Rome and go, hey, you know, Caesar, you think you're Lord? I am the Lord. I defeated death and had a showdown and Jesus would be installed as a ruler of all things. You think that Jesus would perhaps have gone to Athens and confronted with the philosophers of that day? But no, Jesus did not go to the centers of power in that day. Instead, Jesus went to his friends who were fearful for their lives, who were huddled up in homes to show his love. Jesus' post-resurrection appears to his friend because Jesus' primary concern was not to confront the powers of his day, but it was to help his friends who were struggling to believe. He showed up to his friends in the hiding, fearful, so that they would understand his love. That is our God. He is powerful. He defeated death but he's also kind, merciful, and loving. And he'll meet us in a place of our fear. That is the kind of God that we serve. Scripture tells us that it is perfect love that casts out all fear. You see, fear is not a deficiency of faith. It is a deficiency of love. In fear, you do not conjure up more faith to combat that fear. In fear, 
we need to experience God's love, be awestruck and awakened to a place of holy desire. And that is what Jesus is going to do and wants to do in your lives even this day. He wants to meet you in your fear with His love. That is what God is doing in this time. And I pray for you this Easter that no matter where you're at on the planet, whether you're at home or whether somewhere else, wherever you are, wherever you are, even as you're huddled up in fear, not knowing what the future holds, my prayer for you is like, is this like what the scripture tells us that in that day, as the disciples were fearful for their lives, tucked away in a home, Jesus came in, stood in the midst of them and released his peace. And that's my prayer for you this Easter, that no matter where you're at in life, in faith, in your heart, in your soul, that you would experience the nearness of our Savior, His perfect peace, His shalom entering into your home, not just that, but entering into your very soul, into your heart, into your mind, permeating every part of your being until you are made whole and until fear loses its and hold. That is my prayer for you. So this moment, can I invite you to stand wherever you're at? Most of you will probably be sitting down on the couch, really comfortable, but can I invite you to stand in this moment? I would love to pray a simple prayer over you this Easter Sunday, even as we are connected in this means, and uh, but we are apart and not together. Uh, I believe that in this moment, prayer knows no distance, that as I pray for you, wherever you're at, God's presence, who is, which is all around us, will and can meet you. His Spirit is upon uh, your various households and He's looking to meet with you even this moment. So can I ask you for this moment to just bow your heads, close your eyes, and lift your hands before you as I pray for you this morning. Jesus, we invite your Spirit to come upon every home, upon every heart, in this moment. God, we thank you that even in our fear, our unbelief, in our hiding, God, you would break in, in your love, with your love to meet with us. And God, we thank you that you are a God who does not shun us in our imperfections, but all the more you are drawn to it. As God, we profess our weakness, we profess our fear, we profess our inability to make sense of the time. God, we profess our unbelief in certain moments, and God, we ask humbly that you'll meet us today with your love. God, indeed, it is your perfect love that casts out all fear. So, Jesus, our arms are lifted wide open, and we say, God, we want to experience your love even this day. God, we thank you for the reality of the resurrection, that as we pray, we're not praying to an empty void, but we were praying to a very real, very personal Saviour who is present, who is here, even as we pray. God, we thank you for this moment in time. We ask that you will speak to us, that you will touch our hearts even in this day. We love you. We exalt your mighty name. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for all that you have done for us. In your name we pray. Amen.